This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into another episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. My name is Jacob Rudner alongside Swamp 247 staff writer Graham Hall. And Graham, we have a, a super episode this week of the Swamp 247 podcast. Uh, with Thanksgiving coming up, we decided that we would combine uh, our normal weekly episode. So this is going to be our review of Florida's loss at Vanderbilt, plus a preview of Florida's matchup at Florida State, uh, scheduled for November 25th, Friday. Uh, it is in Tallahassee. And we're going to talk about both in this one, just to kind of get everything into, into one nice long podcast. So we uh, appreciate anybody who is uh, listening to this and going to stick with us for the journey here. But without further ado, I say we jump right into this game uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. Florida lost uh, in shocking fashion, I would go as far as to say, to a Vanderbilt team that has just or had just one win in SEC play dating back for a couple years. Uh, it was the first Florida loss in Nashville to Vanderbilt since 1988, uh, and the Gators lost 31-24. There were a lot of shortcomings in the contest. Uh, you could point to a lot of different areas, I think if you were asked what contributed to the loss, but I will take your take uh, on the game first before we delve into some of the specifics. Graham, what were your biggest things that went down within that contest that either made you scratch your head uh, or contributed to the disappointing outcome for the Gators? Yeah, a lot of missed opportunities and errors by this Florida team. I think that you can look at all three phases of the football and say that there were missed opportunities from the offense, you know, the penalties negating, I think, big runs, momentum, whether it was the inefficiency at times in the passing game, even though Anthony Richardson did end up with 400 yards. And there were some plays there in the fourth quarter that he made that got Florida back into the game. Defensively, Florida had a few penalties as well, dropped a couple of surefire turnovers there that maybe would have you know, given Florida a little bit more momentum and stopped some of those Commodores drives. But then on special teams, you wrote about this on swamp247.com. Encourage everyone to check it out if you want a little bit more information on this. But I think special teams had one of their least impressive performances of the season in my mind. I know that they were resigned to their third punt returner after Ricky Pearsall left the game and Xavier Henderson came into the game unavailable to compete for Florida and Jason Marshall Jr. just, you know, lost the punt return in the sun and ends up fumbling it into the end zone and Vanderbilt pounces on it. You factor in that along with the missed extra point, the pair of failed two point conversions. I mean, right there, that's 11 points that special teams or your two point conversion unit kind of left on the board or handed to the other team. And so I think that that absolutely was consequential to Florida's chances to beat this Vanderbilt team at, that, as you noted, Jacob, was coming into this game with a lot of momentum. Uh, having snapped that 26-game SEC losing streak at Kentucky the week earlier, a Kentucky team that, yeah, they were pretty down right now and going through some things, some injuries had caught up to them. 
This was a Kentucky team that was capable of beating Florida by 10 points in the swamp on the second week of the season. And I think that when you look at the danger that a Vanderbilt team like that with momentum posed for Florida, having a dual threat quarterback, you didn't even really know which quarterback was fully going to be able to carry the load for the team. And it ends up being Mike Wright, which I think many people expected to be the case. Florida struggled against this team that was playing confidently, was at home and was able to capitalize on Florida's mistakes. And it resulted in Florida's loss. Like you mentioned for the first time in Nashville since October 15, 1988, that game, Florida was without Emmett Smith. It's starting wide receivers and it's starting quarterback. And they only scored nine points against Vanderbilt. So it's not what you want to have in the same sentence, having a game like that, where a couple of legends were missing from the Florida roster. This game was just, I think, highlight a highlight of what Florida needs to work on and how average this team really can be when they fail to execute and make some mistakes. I was surprised by the lack of execution in this game. I thought that Florida, I don't want to use the, the term turn to corner. I think it's, it's first of all, I think that's an abused term. Uh, second of all, I don't know that Florida really did that. As you and I had discussed on the podcast, they looked between average and okay, at times really bad, uh, prior to a stretch of games against Texas A&M, which was sick, which was struggling, which hadn't won a game in over a month. Uh, then they take on South Carolina, which has been an up-and-down team at best. Uh, and granted, yes, South Carolina really turned it on against Tennessee the following week, but I don't think anybody can realistically deny the fact that that's not a consistently good team. Uh, they have had bad losses already this season. And so I thought that, you know, even though the quality of opponent had diminished and Florida seemed to be responding to that well, I like we and I talked about it, I, I thought that there was a lot of value in the improved performance in those contests, even against poor opponents. And so I thought that this Vanderbilt game would be similarly motivated with a, with a similar outcome. I thought that Billy Napier would probably have had an opportunity to kind of just continue the momentum in the similar fashion that he had in the previous two games against another, frankly, weak opponent. And that didn't happen. I thought that Florida's execution from top to bottom was very poor. Uh, offensively, I thought that there were significant missed opportunities in the run game. Uh, Anthony Richardson did not keep option runs himself when he absolutely should have. He said as much in, in the days after the game. Uh, Billy Napier seemed to agree with that. Um, I thought that that was a significant contributing factor. I thought Florida's offensive line played quite poorly uh, upon rewatching the game. I, I, this was not their best performance, and I should add that this is a unit that's been excellent, in my opinion, this year. They were, they were not very good in this game. Uh, defensively, I thought Florida was all over the place. They left holes in their coverages. Uh, their pass rush was inconsistent. Um, I, I, I thought that they allowed way too many opportunities to a Vanderbilt team that really, frankly, isn't good enough or doesn't have the skill position players, uh, the quantity of them, to be as successful as they were in this contest. And then, of course, you mentioned the special teams. Kind of gotten to a point in this season where this is a real problem, Graham. Uh, I think that special teams for Florida, which I wrote about uh, on the site yesterday, for those of you who haven't, like Graham said, you should check it out on swamp247.com. But this is this isn't the first time where you and I have sat on this podcast and had a conversation about, hey, special teams is not doing well enough. The special teams is making mistakes. They're returning uh, kicks or punts 
that they should either be fair catching or letting go out the back of the end zone. They are, uh, you know, taking on penalties on returns that are forcing them into terrible starting field position. Uh, there have been missed kicks. Uh, there have been there has been bad kick and punt coverage. Florida ranks among the bottom teams in the nation in both categories this season. In punt yardage, they almost rank in the, it, below 100th out of 131 FBS schools. This has not been a good unit on a consistent basis. I think Jeremy Crawshaw, the punter, has been a consistent bright spot uh, in, in a weaker unit. And so I, I'm starting to wonder whether or not they might need to investigate the potential of bringing on a full-time coach for special teams, somebody who can coordinate the unit. There are a lot of schools that are very successful uh, in special teams and can actually change the outcome of games based on their performance in that regard. And, and Billy Napier has said that that's something that he thinks his team should be capable of while he's here in Gainesville. And that has not happened, not even close this season. Uh, and so my brain starts to wonder what solutions might be. Uh, and this was, in my opinion, the game where it was most glaring, as you said quite eloquently, uh, that there are A, problems on this team that need to be fixed uh, and will not be fixed this season. They will be fixed, hopefully, over the offseason, if you're Billy Napier. Uh, and, and those are things that he can remedy via recruiting, the transfer portal, roster attrition. I think that there are things, though, that need to be remedied in terms of uh, game planning in terms of execution. And, and the reality is, is I don't think Billy Napier would tell you otherwise. I, he is the first person to say, every time we speak to him after a loss, this is on me. I needed to do a better job with the game planning. I needed to do this or that. It falls on me. I'm the head coach. It's my job is what he likes to say. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's true. It, it does fall on the head coach. Uh, and it is his responsibility to clean up certain things, and he knows that. So uh, I, I think that this will be an offseason, or it has to be an offseason of significant change. Uh, and I do wonder how some of the areas of struggle will be uh, responded to in the next couple months. That Those are my big takeaways from the game. I'm curious from you, uh, specifically with regard to Florida's defense, we saw a performance that was somewhat reminiscent of the first half of the season. It was fairly lackluster. Uh, I thought that there were several glaring mistakes that led to points. Uh, once again, Florida struggled to cover that tight end fullback uh, position and gave up a touchdown to Vanderbilt's fullback, which which obviously made a significant difference in the game. Uh, and they lose Ventro Miller in the fourth quarter. He will not be available in all likelihood for the first half of the Florida State game due to a targeting call. So uh, what was your takeaway with the defensive performance? Was this regressive in your opinion? Where are they at? Yeah, I got to say, first and foremost, for diving into that, I did not think that that was a targeting penalty on Ventron Miller. I know that it looked like textbook in a sense. You and I were talking about this up there in the box, the way that yeah. that rule is called. Looked like to me like he led with the shoulder and just the way that the two guys met. He ends up hitting him with the crown of his helmet. And then targeting reviews that he's out. I don't like that call whatsoever. I think it's the worst call in that just the targeting rule in general is the worst call in sports in my mind. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I don't think anyone really knows how it's going to go a lot of the time. Because even sometimes when you think it's a blatant targeting, they come away and say that it wasn't. So I think a little bit more clarity, maybe refining that rule moving forward could benefit everyone from officials to viewers at home 
and especially the players, because I think that there's still some confusion at times of what is going to get me ejected from the game. But all that aside, Ventrell Miller, his exit there in the fourth quarter certainly, I think, impacted Florida from a momentum standpoint, from a togetherness standpoint on defense, and certainly from a communication standpoint. You know, this is a guy who is the middle of the defense, communicates with all three levels. And I think that you see at times when he's not out there or he's struggling, it kind of correlates with the entire team struggling at times. And I think that you saw that there in the fourth quarter where Vanderbilt was able to put away Florida, even though Anthony Richardson was able to hit Dejon Reynolds for a pair of touchdowns there, and they were able to have some success and theoretically have a chance at the end of the game. Once again, just like the Tennessee game where it looked like they were going to lose this game by double digits and they end up cutting it to a chance where on the final play of the game, Florida in theory has a chance to win that game. Or at least in the case of on Saturday, Florida's down seven points. They have a chance to tie it if they go for a third possible two-point conversion, which isn't outside the realm of possibility. Remember that Missouri did it last year in double overtime to beat the Gators. You do see, see sometimes teams gamble on that. Florida really had a chance to win the game at the end there. But I think what is the biggest indictment in a lot of people's minds is that they were in a situation where they had to mount a comeback against this Vanderbilt team. And a lot of it was self-inflicted. I, I don't mean to take anything away from the Commodores whatsoever, but I think you had defensive lapses. You had missed tackles. You had, I think, a few coverage issues. And maybe that is due to the fact that you lose Rashad Torrance there in the first half of that game and have to rely on a pair of freshman safeties and Miguel Mitchell and Kamari Wilson. Kamari ends up dropping a surefire interception that he possibly could have housed there in that game. Just missed opportunities and blown assignments just kind of was a pattern on Saturday in my mind in Nashville, and it ended up being to Florida's detriment. I think that, you know, what you said about the special teams, their concerns, that is something that is going to be reevaluated after the season. If you've been following our coverage, you understand that the kicker situation with a walk-on and Adam Mahalik and having a scholarship guy in Trey Smack who's been dealing with a nagging injury throughout the season, that situation there has kind of been difficult for Florida to manage, knowing where Mahalik's weaknesses is, are on kickoff returns and how Trey Smack, they would like to get some experience for that guy moving forward, knowing that he's the scholarship guy. So certainly it's something to monitor, as well as the construction of the coaching staff, like you mentioned, whether they add a full-time assistant or have you know your running backs coach be your special teams coordinator. That's a situation that Florida fans have experienced in the past when Dan Mullen was here and he brought Greg Knox over to be their special teams coordinator. That is absolutely, I think, in the realm of possibility here because it's pretty clear right now that Florida is going to need to make some improvements on the defensive end and on special teams heading into the offseason. And that's before even talking about where things were from an offensive standpoint, some of the weaknesses at wide receiver, at tight end from a pass catching standpoint. This is a team that is going to have to do a lot of self-evaluation and reconstruction in the offseason. And I think that this game in Vanderbilt kind of drove that point home in my mind. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things that we had been hearing about from Florida's coaches or coach and players in, in recent weeks was how the team had taken a step in the right direction uh, from a leadership standpoint and how that vastly impacted their results on the field. Billy Napier basically said, you know, one of the main goals for year one was to reset the culture, uh, kind of establish a everybody plays for everybody uh, vibe. 
in which he had leaders throughout the locker room and guys stepping up to really take charge of the group. Uh, we heard that Rashad Torrance was one of those guys. We knew that Ventral Miller was one of those guys. It sounded like Anthony Richardson really stepped up to become one of those people. Um, Saturday's game in Nashville, at least on the defensive side of the ball, really clearly illustrated to me that while there might be improvement from a leadership standpoint, Ventrell Miller is the glue that holds the foundation together. Uh, Ventrell Miller is the guy who keeps the wheels turning at maximum efficiency, whether that's because of his, you know, physical presence because he's a good tackler and he makes good plays and he's a smart football player or because he is the emotional spiritual leader of this defense. I don't know the blend of, of those two things and how much they contribute to Florida's success or lack thereof. That being said, there is still to me a clear difference and you can disagree, but there is a clear difference to me between Florida defense with Ventrell Miller on the field versus Florida defense without Ventrell Miller on the field. I think that it is blatant uh, with, with him. He, they're a different team. It, it, it's just, it's not even close. And so my, concern from this game from this Vanderbilt game was Florida's defensive unit had a poor first three-ish quarters and it got worse in the fourth quarter when you lose Ventrell Miller the mistakes were more frequent uh they were more obvious and whether or not Vanderbilt capitalized on them is one thing but if you watched the game or if you re-watch the game after listening to this podcast which by the way if you have the time to do so I would encourage you to do. I think that there's a lot of value in re-watching something once you think you know uh, what, what, what happened and kind of watching for the little details. You will notice, I think, that there were more issues in coverage. The pass rush was less organized and therefore less effective. And again, there were times where Florida got away with that in the, floor, in the fourth quarter, and you could blame things like fatigue or whatever, However, they still occurred. The mistakes still happened. And in a different game, if you play that way, you don't know if you're going to get so lucky. And I think that that's a, a good transition to our next topic, which is this Florida State game. Uh, Florida taking on number 16, Florida State. The Seminoles have had a good year. I, I'm, I'm not going to try and uh, paint it in any other way. I think that this has been a very solid season for Florida State. I think that they look good. I think that they're particularly hot right now. Their offense looks great uh, over their last couple games. And Florida could be without Ventral Miller for the first half of the contest, again, due to that targeting penalty, unless there is a successful appeal. Now, different than Graham, uh, I while I think that the call might have been soft, as people like to say, uh, I do think that by the rule book, it could be painted as targeting. And I don't think that the league office We'll review that and go, this is conclusive. There's no argument that it, it is targeting. It is absolutely no doubt about it not targeting. That would be the case in which they would overturn the call. I don't think that that's there. So I don't think Florida will have Ventral Miller for the first half against a very hot team. Graham, you wrote our first look, which is our in-depth preview of Florida's opponents. Uh, we write one every week. You wrote ours about Florida State. I'm going to turn it over to you to talk uh, about Florida State's offense to uh, begin with here. Uh, strong unit. What, what What's going on with them? I think a lot of wise moves in the offseason from a coaching standpoint, especially, but also in 
this is kind of the blueprint for how you go out in the transfer portal and identify areas of need and bolster your roster and make those improvements. I mean, it really goes back to a year ago when Florida State, the week before the end of the regular season, ends up getting Micah Pittman from Oregon. I think that getting that guy from across country, a former you know top 100 player, according to 247 Sports, getting him in the fold was some good early momentum. Then landing right after the season, Jared Verse. I mean, that is a massive one in my mind, just going out there and getting a guy from Albany University, an FCS guy who now, according to some NFL draft analysts, could be a top 15, if not a top 10 pick in the upcoming NFL draft after just one season at FSU. He has 14 tackles for loss this season and 7.5 sacks. At incredibly impressive numbers, just a great pass rusher on the defensive end for them. Getting Trey Benson from Oregon as well, who is their leading rusher. Actually, Benson ranks third in among all FBS rushers in yards per carry with 7.09 yards per carry on just 121 attempts. He's a danger to break one every single time he gets a carry. And combined with Jordan Travis's improvement now in his fifth year, they have a dangerous running attack. But then the biggest one who I know this is going to make you smile about, and I mean big literally, is getting Johnny Wilson out of Arizona State, your former stomping grounds, Jacob, a six foot seven guy who can take the top off of a defense, has the ability to go for massive yards every single time. You know, I just mentioned Benson's average yards per carry. Wilson's doing the same thing from a reception standpoint. He's number two among all FBS wide receivers in average yards per reception for all wide receivers who have at least 30 receptions this season. There's only a couple of those guys, and he's averaging nearly 20 yards per catch just under that. I think that this is a dangerous weapon. Florida can't take multiple players within this offense lightly, and that was not the case last year. You know, No disrespect to the Knowles for their first two years of the Mike Norvell regime, but he was inheriting, I think, a lot of problems on that roster, a lot of frustrated players, from the way that Willie Taggart era ended, and as well as some guys who just weren't cut out for what FSU historically has done here, especially over the past you know three decades of football. They were soft in many ways, in my mind, especially on the offensive line where there wasn't a lot of continuity. I give Alex Atkins a whole lot of credit. This may not be what a lot of Florida fans want to hear, but that is a valuable addition at two spots, really. I mean, he was their offensive line coach after coming over from Charlotte. And then in December of last year, at the end of the season, he gets promoted to offensive coordinator. And that has paid massive dividends, in my mind, for this Florida State team. And that's just talking about their offense. When you really dive into their defense, too, it is a unit that has been impressive. Yes, I don't think that they faced the quality of opponent that Florida has faced, but they faced LSU. They faced Clemson. They faced Miami. This is not a team that has just played nothing but cupcakes. They have faced some tough right. adversaries, and they've had some success. And so I think that when you combine all of that, their statistical improvements being top 15 and multiple impressive statistics, pass defense, scoring defense, only allowing 18 points per game, this is an FSU team that, when you boil it down, really looks improved in year three, which is the trajectory that you want to see out of your head coaches. You want to see massive improvement, maybe not from year one to year two, knowing what some of the difficulties can be for a head coach who has inherited a roster and then has to 
kind of balance that attrition process still into year two. Not every coach is going to be Josh Heupel and have the team in the national conversation in year two. But in year three, if you can make those improvements, you are going to be rewarded with it. You already saw Mike Norvell get a one-year contract extension. He's going to be with that program, it looks like, through 2026 if they keep it up. And they're benefiting from the stability in Tallahassee for really the first time since Jimbo Fisher left. And I think that that makes them a very dangerous team before you even factor in that they're playing a rivalry opponent and it's going to be in their home stadium when they're looking to get a nine win season after just getting eight wins combined in their first two years. So it's not what Florida fans want to hear. This is not an FSU team with a lot of glaring weaknesses on paper. And that makes it so that Florida can't come out making the same mistakes that they made in Nashville and expecting to have a chance to win this game and, and avoid ending the season on a two game losing streak. This is a, a team that is going to present a lot of challenges from Florida in all three phases. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm going to be blunt. Uh, I will evaluate. At, at, you just heard a, a really great overview of Florida State's offense from Graham. I will give you what I think is the uh, the matchup. I'll talk. I'll, I'll speak to Florida's defense matching up against this offense. I think it's a terrible matchup. I think this is the uh, this is this is not a good scenario for Florida's defense. I think that they're coming off of a bad performance. I think that they have struggled in certain areas that Florida State is really proficient in. I think that they have the ability to run the football in a way that Florida has not demonstrated the ability to defend consistently. Uh, I don't know that Florida's interior defensive line play has been consistently good enough to guarantee a, a, a reasonable performance against this FSU run game. Uh, I think that Florida will have to be very good at keeping contain on, on Jordan Travis, who does have the ability to run the football quite well. And I, we haven't seen that occur consistently. Even uh, a guy like like Gary Bohannon was was capable of running the football against against a team like Florida in that South Florida game. And and normally I would say, well, Florida's moved on from some of these mistakes, and and we're at a point in the season now where that's way in the past, and you know let's let's disregard it. But I like I said earlier, I thought that we saw a lot of the same ugly mistakes, ugly tendencies kind of rear their head again in this Vanderbilt game. And so now I think reasonably I have questions about where Florida really is at when it comes to facing a team that has been successful. And I, I understand that there are a lot of Florida fans, like you said, Graham, that they don't want to hear that. They, they don't want to hear that Florida State is is in a good, good spot right now and they look solid. And I think there's a very good chance that they finish the regular season as a nine-win team. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, make anybody happy. Uh, who's, a, who's a Florida fan. However, it is the reality. And I'll, I'll give you another area where I think that Florida State has a real advantage. I, I think that Johnny Wilson and the rest of this receiving corps is, is very talented. Uh, I think that Florida's pass coverage has been inconsistent, uh, at times well below average. Uh, and that's against receivers who I did not find to be that impressive. I, I think that they've struggled against some guys who are just really not that good. Uh, and this is a game where I think that 
Florida State has had moments this season where its passing attack has been inconsistent and its skill position players might not necessarily be uh, the most consistent producers. Johnny Wilson, uh, and this is even dating back to his Arizona State days, had major drop problems. There, there, there have been issues when he gets targeted in easy catch scenarios and just can't come up with the, with the ball. And, and that is a career-long thing for him. Uh, that has clearly carried over to Tallahassee since his transfer. That being said, though, are we really confident that Florida's defense is capable of covering a guy like Johnny Wilson, who has elite speed for a guy who's six foot seven? He's built like a tight end. He blocks well. Uh, we talked to Jason Marshall, who said that one of the big concerns in the game like this is that you have a mobile quarterback like Jordan Travis. But, and I thought that this was very smart of him, so at least Florida is aware of this. FSU's wide receivers are exceptionally good blockers. They are very good blockers on the perimeter. Florida has had a history this season. There's a tendency that they kind of get manhandled on the perimeter. They've allowed wide receivers to be very successful in blocking them. I think that that should be a main concern in this game. I, I, I wonder how a guy like Johnny Wilson can impact a contest by being somebody who gets into Florida defensive back's face and, and blocks them and, and paves a path for Jordan Travis or a running back. I think that these are the kinds of things that set up really nicely for Florida state in this contest. And if you look at Florida's defense, it just does not match up. Well, um, Graham, let's talk about Florida state's defense in, in a little more detail. You started talking about them a second ago. Uh, what, what does this unit bring to the table? And again, I think this is a group that has been uh, hot lately contributing to a very solid season. Yeah, they got players at all three levels here right now. And again, as I mentioned with Jared Verse, they've had success at the transfer portal, guys who have come in and played starting roles for this team. And it hasn't even just been power five programs here necessarily. They've gone in, they got Tatum Bethune <clears throat> out of UCF, and he has been a leader at linebacker for this team this season. Obviously, I think a lot of people who have followed recruiting and as well as followed FSU are familiar with the rise of Akeem Dent a guy who played in, you know, he started eight games last season for FSU, but really had a, a really impressive spring up there in Tallahassee and cemented himself as a, a surefire starter in a way. He's been in 11 games all season, third on the team in tackles. They've also got some freshmen who are stepping up, Clayton, Ray. I mean, those are a pair of, you know, redshirt freshmen on the defensive line who have been having an impact for this team, which is something that you want to see. You don't just want to have your impact transfers come in and play the majority of the reps so that you don't develop the guys behind them. They've been able to rotate those guys in there to, to build some experience there. I think that also when you look at their secondary, I know I mentioned Dent, but look at Jamie Robinson. You know, that is a guy who at safety is, is just kind of a leader for that team. And I know that Florida fans aren't unfamiliar with maybe the narrative of what happens when a, a senior, um, you know, the safety leads you in tackles and what that can kind of say possibly about where the offense is targeting you and as well as maybe be an indicator of some missed tackles in the first two levels. But Jamie Robinson is just a lockdown guy in my mind. It's hard to beat him. He knows where to be. He's smart and really a young guy too. You know, I just mentioned a redshirt freshman here. That is a guy who a class of 2021 player now in his second year leading them in tackles this is a team that is encouraged by the play of the younger guys, has veteran leadership on the team. And when you look at what they like to do, that 4-2-5, a very familiar scheme to Florida, 
from a defensive perspective. I think that when you look at what they can do, this is a tough matchup here. You know, you look at how they are not just outscoring opponents by a, a wide margin and, and putting points on the board. They are limiting opponents from an offensive perspective, a production standpoint. I mean, this is a team that gets takeaways and, and forces, you know, the, the opponent to punt it away a lot of the time and get their offense on the field with the weapons they have. They have had success over the last four weeks, especially they've won every game over the past month by 25 points or more. This is a dangerous defense who has been stopping opposition. I don't know necessarily if they have faced a quarterback with Anthony Richardson's level of dynamic ability. And that brings me to my next point. This is a matchup situation in my mind. Florida State's defense is not the most impressive Florida has faced all year long. They've gone up against Georgia. They've faced a Kentucky team that I thought looked good early in the season. They've faced some top defenses in my mind here. Anthony Richardson, I think, has been a determining factor in whether Florida's offense is going to have success. You mentioned at the beginning of this podcast his ability to read the defense, decide whether to tuck it and run or hand it off, change the play at the line. His decision-making is going to be under the microscope on Saturday, knowing that he has the ability to do damage on the ground. It really is going to come down to whether he makes the right decision pre-snap to be in a position to do damage on the ground. And that was not something that you saw in Nashville that gives people, I think, a lot of hope that he's going to be able to do this against a better defense in the one the Knowles have. So it is going to, I think, come down a lot to the decision-making process for Anthony Richardson. And if he is anything like he was on Saturday, Florida is going to flounder against this FSU defense. Yeah, that's well said. I, I honestly, there's not even much I would really add to that. I think that that was really thorough. I, this is again, I, I, this is a better matchup relative to what I just said about Florida's Florida state's offense versus Florida's defense. I think that this is, slightly more even. I think that Florida has the potential to be more explosive than its defense does offensively. Uh, but again, that that's so dependent on which Anthony Richardson decides to show up. Is it, at the, is it the Anthony Richardson who is uh, an effective passer, which we know he can be? Is it, that, is it that Anthony Richardson? And he does he combine that with, you know, uh, taking advantage of opportunities on the ground when they exist? And that means keeping option plays. That means turning pass play, design pass plays into impromptu run plays, which is an area we've seen him be extremely successful this season. In fact, I, I believe a high percentage, I'm not going to say the exact number because I don't know it off the top of my head, but a high percentage of Anthony Richardson's 20 plus yard runs have come on non-designed runs. They've come on passes. And it's just the guy being an escape artist who's a talented runner. He's hard to bring down. He's physical. He knows how to fight through contact. That if that guy shows up, I think Florida always has a chance. Uh, this is a team that can that can keep up with really anybody offensively. I mean, heck, we saw them keep up with with Tennessee in Knoxville. And I'm not trying to claim that Tennessee is some world beater this year. We've seen that they have their weaknesses, but the fact that Florida was able to keep pace with what I thought is one of the most high octane offenses that they saw that says something. We saw against an outstanding Georgia defense. We saw Florida put up, what was it, 20-some-odd unanswered points in the third quarter. They went on an absolute rampage. And what were the commonalities between those successes? It's all Anthony Richardson. It's, does this guy make the unannounced play? Does he read the defenses correctly 
and understand when it's best for him to keep the ball and try and make a play himself versus hand it to one of his running backs? Is this the Anthony Richardson who makes accurate, smart, uh, you know, calculated throws? Is this the guy who, and we've seen that guy. I'm not, I'm not talking about something that doesn't exist. I'm talking about something that is very realistic uh, and that we've seen. And if it doesn't show up, I think that this game has the potential to actually be quite lopsided. I think that Florida State's defense is good enough to really keep Florida off the board if Anthony Richardson is not all the things that you and I just said. I think that Florida's defense is not necessarily good enough or consistent enough to keep this FSU offense at bay. And the key to victory, in my opinion, is will Florida go all-out war offense versus offense in this one? I don't think that the win will come down to the defenses. I just don't. It's it's, it's who will beat the other team's defense more aggressively. Can FSU do damage the way that Vanderbilt did? Because if that's the case, I think this could be a bloodbath. Can it, this, it, it, that's really what it comes down to, in my opinion. I think that it's just this is an offensive war if Florida wants to stay in it. Uh, Graham, I think that's, that's going to do it for our preview portion of the podcast. Now that will allow us to move on to what is easily my favorite uh, part of the show. Every single week, it's select the SEC time where Graham and I go back and forth, uh, picking who we think will win straight up and against the spread uh, in every game featuring an SEC team. And we keep score uh, straight up, meaning just picking who's going to win. Uh, we have been fantastic all year. I am 79 and 22. You are 76 and 25. Uh, th- by the way, we will pick for bowl games. So this is this is technically your second to last week of select the SEC. Graham is three games behind straight up. Against the spread, it's it's getting ugly. Uh, I am 39 and 46, which is still not even that respectable. Uh, Graham, however, is now 31 and 54. Uh, you are getting obliterated against the spread. Fade me. Fade me. 100%. Fade me, um, baby. You have to. I will pick first uh, this week for the contest out of fairness to Graham, uh, and he can choose to fade me or not. And we will start with a Thanksgiving Day matchup, 7 p.m. Eastern time, Mississippi State at number 20, Ole Miss. Uh, Ole Miss is a two-point favorite. I will take Ole Miss. Mm. I'm taking Mississippi State in the upset. Um, I, I was going to take Ole Miss in my head just now, and I'm going to change my mind live on the show. We're going to go Mississippi State to just outright win. Uh, Graham, what you got? Lane Kiffin has been a master troll on social media recently. <laughs> I got to give him a lot of credit. I don't want to be one of those lazy people who's going to say, well, is his head in this game? Yeah, his head's in this game. I think that Ole Miss wins and covers. I think that if this is... Lane Kiffin's final regular season game in Oxford. He's going to go out with a bang. He's not a coach who's going to go out there, you know, silently into the night and leave everyone at the fan base that he's leaving, you know, angry with him necessarily. I I think that he's going to end up winning this and and winning it, I think, by double digits. Man, I love me some Egg Bowl. I think Ole Miss rolls. We have Arkansas at Missouri. Arkansas, a three-point favorite. I think this is another really tough one. Missouri's defense has stepped up at times this season. Arkansas uh, pretty much as inconsistent as it gets. Uh, the Razorbacks go into this one six and five. Missouri is five and six, fighting for bowl eligibility here. Uh, so you got to wonder how much that motivates. Uh, Arkansas minus three. 
I'm, I'm going to go with the Razorbacks here. I don't feel confident about it. I would stay away from this game if you're actually betting on it. But uh, for me, Arkansas winning cover. Yeah, I'm going to go Arkansas winning cover as well. I've been kind of high on Arkansas all season long. I think that Sam Pittman still has done a really good job there. Obviously, injuries to K.J. Jefferson kind of hurt some momentum that they had this season. They also lost some games in very disappointing fashion there. But I think that they bounce back, end the season on a high note. They win in cover against the Tigers. This is another just massive line, and these scare me. But Georgia is hosting Georgia Tech. Uh, UGA is a 35-and-a-half-point favorite. Again, uh, I will remind everybody, though, that we, we do use the odds on ESPN. Uh, the displayed consensus odds for every game. If you go and you click on uh, SEC NCAA football games, uh, there are odds displayed to the right. We use those at the time of our recording, which in this case is 9.40 in the morning uh, on Wednesday, November 23rd. Uh, but I will take Georgia to win and cover in this one, even though they're coming off a performance in which they scored just 16 points against Kentucky. But give me Bulldogs. I'm going to go different than you here. I'm going to say Georgia wins, but doesn't cover. I know that they went through a coaching change earlier in the year, but this is a team that has looked better in my mind over the final month. I also think that Georgia, I know Kirby Smart likes beating the pants off every opponent, but I think that Georgia, knowing that they are in the SEC championship game, potentially with a spot on the college football playoff on the line, if they lose in the SC championship game, just given how many teams are right there in the conversation, whether it's TCU or the team that could beat them in the SEC championship game in LSU, I think that this game, Georgia gets out to a lead, effectively puts it away there at some point, whether it's in the second quarter or in the third quarter, and they kind of get their inexperienced guys in to make sure that they are not endangering their chances of going out in a consequential game next week and are a little bit shorthanded. I think that Georgia wins by double digits, but I don't see them getting up to a point where they win by, what, five touchdowns, man. Would have to be 36 points uh, for Georgia to cover in that one. Some, for some reason, I'm going to take them to do that. Uh, South Carolina is at number eight Clemson this week. Uh, South Carolina obviously coming off of a huge win. Clemson, however, is a 14-and-a-half-point favorite. I like them to win and cover. Uh Yes, South Carolina had a great game. Uh, I just think Clemson's the better team, and they should be able to win by 15. I think Clemson wins, but I don't think they cover. Give South Carolina a lot of credit for hanging 63 on a Tennessee defense that I've noted time and time again that is just not one of the best in the SEC. I think that Clemson's defense, even though they've recruited at a high level, is pretty comparable at times. They have shut some opponents out, yes, but they've also given up you know a significant amount of points to teams this season. I am going to go with Clemson winning, but not covering that, what, 15-point margin. You know, it's interesting. This week, we have uh, quite a bit of variance between the two of us against the spread, which should uh, provide... You are eight games behind me in the standings. I got to make a comeback somehow, man. I got to make a comeback somehow. I'm with you, and this gives the people an opportunity to pick uh, who they think is smarter uh, for this week if you're going to go with our picks, which you probably shouldn't even do, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to move on now to number 25, Louisville at unranked Kentucky. Kentucky is six and five, Louisville seven and four. Kentucky, however, is a three point favorite. I am going with Louisville to win this game. I think that they get their eighth win of the season in their season finale. Graham, will you disagree with me once more? Oh, I will. Oh, I, I gladly will, Jacob. I'm going Kentucky wins and covers. Mark Stoops just got paid, baby. 
nothing like waking up and realizing you make 100K more than John Calipari. I think that Mark Stoops has the team ready to go in this rivalry game. They end the season on a high note, get back to rebuilding them, their team a little bit, knowing they're going to lose some pieces, knowing that they're going to have to go back into the transfer portal and identify guys. I think Kentucky wins and covers, ends the season on a high note. After, you know, they really dealt with a lot this season. The uncertainty with the SEC's leading rusher from last year, Chris Rodriguez, I don't think enough has been made of that. Losing, you know, Will Levis for for what I think he was out for a game, but was dealing with some nagging injuries as well. Their offensive line, some injuries there too. This is a team that wasn't able to compete at their best due to some issues in Lexington there. And I think that finally you're going to see them play a game that was really reminiscent of that second game of the season where they beat Florida at home. I think that Kentucky wins this game by double digits. Okay. Uh Auburn at Alabama, the Iron Bowl. It'll be on CBS. Uh, Alabama is a 22-point favorite. Uh, I think Nick Saban is looking to beat the the, uh, the brakes off of somebody here. I think that this has been a season where frustration might be a good word. I think that there have been some losses that he would obviously like back. Uh, unlikely that this is a team that goes to the college football playoff, although it's possible. Uh, there have been, I think, two maybe three teams ranked seventh in the college football playoff ranking going into the final week of the regular season and still made the college football playoff. It's going to take some help, but uh, one way to do that would be by covering this 22 and a half point spread and really beating up on Auburn. I think Bama does it. Uh, Alabama win and cover for me. I'm going to go Alabama win, not cover. I think that, you know, I'm going to give a lot of respect to the caddy daddy. Uh, I think Cadillac Williams, what he's doing there. Give him a lot of credit. Just a guy that you want to root for. Just seems like a really, really good guy. I think that they have this. He has this team believing, wanting to play for him right now. I think that there's a lot of support in there to see him either <clears throat> retained in some capacity or be able to be a candidate for that head coaching job. I think that, you know, give him a lot of credit. Their team is going to come out eager to play against this Alabama team in a rivalry, you know, matchup. I don't think they they lose by three touchdowns. I think that they end up covering and, and coming up short against Alabama, but it's an impressive performance given what we've seen at times from Auburn this year. I think that they're going to have another good one in them. All right. Well, the disagreements continue between the two of us. I think that this is one where we should probably agree. Uh, number five, LSU, is headed to College Station to take on a 4-7 and seven Texas A&M team. LSU, however, is just a 10-point favorite, and I will say it for the second week in a row. LSU is my game of the week. Uh, I don't know why Vegas continues to disrespect the Tigers. I think that they they were like a 14 and a half point favorite against UAB last week, which was crazy. Uh, obviously, they covered that. This is feeling similar. I think Texas A&M is awful. Uh, there's going to be nobody at this game. People don't even care about the team at this point. LSU is on fire. They're going for their 10th win in the regular season. Uh, at this point, trying to secure a spot in the college football playoff. They're probably going to need a loss from one of those top four teams, which is certainly possible. Uh, and at just 10 points, I love this LSU line. So I'm going LSU win and cover. And I would encourage you, if you're a betting person, to do the same. Yeah, I mean, LSU could get that win over Georgia there. And if with a win at Texas A&M, vaunt themselves into that top four there in the college football playoff. I don't see them beating Georgia, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but I do think that knowing everything they have to play for, I think that they win this game and cover, although I don't think it's going to be a massive blowout, even though the Aggies play more freshmen in the SEC than any other team. Maybe this is lazy, 
But I'm of the believer that Brian Kelly each year has a disappointing game in him. I think he's a great coach, but I think at times he kind of makes some mistakes or comes up short or maybe possibly looks ahead. Those are all cliches. But either way, it is hard to be dominant for 12 games. And I know that LSU already has a pair of losses on its plate, but I think maybe this game is the one that is closer than it should be. I don't think that LSU loses, but I think they just barely covered that spread. I don't think it's going to be a massive blowout by any sense of the word. I think that it's going to be a close game, although I do still see LSU managing to win by two touchdowns there at the end. I would tend to agree. Uh, I think we're going to hit the same mark on this one as well. Number 10, Tennessee is at Vanderbilt. Uh, Tennessee is nine and two now after a loss to South Carolina, uh, kind of putting a damper on what was really a kind of a storybook season year two under Josh Heupel. Uh, and Vanderbilt is five and six. And here's a crazy situation. If Vanderbilt can beat Tennessee, they're going bowling. So that would be uh, quite the situation for a team uh, that has a history of just being really bad. Uh, however, I think that this is going to be ugly. I think that Tennessee is upset. I think that Tennessee is far superior to Vanderbilt. And we had a little inside knowledge. I'll share a story. Uh, Graham and I, when we landed in Nashville, were picked up by a, a lovely gentleman in an Uber whose name I don't know. Uh, I, I, maybe you remember his name, but uh, he was a Tennessee fan. And he told us that he was hearing that Tennessee fans would be out in numbers uh, so much for this game that they would checker the stadium in orange and white, which is demoralizing uh, for the home team to see your opponent, which is the away team, uh, pretty much take over your stadium. So I, for for that reason, plus the talent, uh, just a 14-point spread, which is nothing, uh, I like Tennessee to win by more than just two touchdowns. Yeah, no offense to our Uber driver, but I'm going to consider the source here. I would... I'm going to have to see it to believe it, that, that that they checker that stadium first and foremost. I think the biggest factor in this game is the one that, no offense, Jacob, it's the one you didn't mention. Losing Hendon Hooker for this game, will Tennessee's offense be able to not miss a beat? Florida yes. fans, I think, are familiar, more familiar than you are, my friend, with Joe Milton and his shortcomings whether it was when he was an Orlando prospect and camping at Florida and Florida offered him and what he did at Michigan. I don't think that their offense misses a beat without him. I think that they have a few more struggles that we haven't seen this season. And I have also said, even in this podcast, Tennessee's defense is not all that. That's I fine. see this being a closer game than many people think. Give Vanderbilt a lot of credit. You just use the same argument for being close to bowl eligibility and what a team has to potentially play for. That is a motivating factor in my mind. I think that this game is a little bit closer. I do still think that Tennessee manages to win by two touchdowns, but Vanderbilt beat Florida by more than Tennessee beat Florida. And not to say that that has any impact on it, but I do think that you have to give a little respect to Vanderbilt right now. I respect After him. what they just did and what Tennessee is dealing with, everything the disappointment of seeing their their chances at making the college football playoff fall apart there at the end. I think that that's a hangover. I think losing Hendon Hooker is a hangover. I'm worried that this Tennessee team is already looking to next season, and I hate to use the term trap game, but they potentially could be overconfident thinking that this is another Vanderbilt team that they are used to 
you know, accustomed to beating the pants off of, and they think that they're going to do it even with a backup quarterback. I think it's a mistake, my friend. I am going with Tennessee winning, but not covering. Bold. Uh, definitely bold. You're, you're, you're betting on a, on a Vanderbilt team to put together three uh, very strong weeks, which I don't foresee. Uh, let's move on to the last game and wrap up here. Uh, we are talking Florida, Florida State. Florida State is a nine and a half point favorite. Uh, entering play of the game is at 7.30 on Friday, November 25th. It will be televised on ABC. Uh, Gators enter play 6-5, and five, looking for their seventh win of the season uh, to try and not uh, finish another regular season at 6-6, six and six. Uh, while Florida State is looking for win number 9 at number 16 in the college football playoff standings. Uh, Graham, as always, we will take a score prediction on this one. Again, a 9.5 point spread uh, in favor of Florida State. I will be picking Florida State to win and cover at 38-24. For the reasons we outlined in this podcast, I just think that this is a a hot FSU offense, a cold Florida defense. Uh, I think that the mismatches that FSU presents offensively could be pretty overwhelming for this Gator team. And I just don't know that Florida has the offensive organization overall to to score that much. 24 points feels pretty reasonable to me. Uh, I thought about saying 27, which would still be a Florida State cover, uh, and I could see that happening, but but I'm going to stick with my 14-point differential here and go 38-24. Uh, I just don't see it, and I don't know how you could bet on Florida after last week's result. Uh, I understand that rivalry games present a different motivation, and that can alter things and whatever. Uh, I, just, I just think that if you drill down to the football and you ignore the emotional hoopla that is around this game uh i like florida state as 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 the football team and i think that florida has a ways to go before it it can really match play in this one wow i'm ready to shock the world i think that florida wins this game hello i think that florida wins 27 to 24 i think anthony richardson has an impressive performance i think that he runs the football effectively I don't think that they faced a quarterback like him all season long. I know that the injuries along, especially at wide receiver and at, at on the defense, not having Ventura Miller the first half. Also, those could be problematic factors for Florida. But I think that Florida ends up running the ball effectively against this FSU offense and this uh, defense, excuse me. And this is going to be a close game in the fourth quarter that I think could go either way. Everything that we've said about Florida's issues this season especially, you know, Tennessee, even Vanderbilt, in theory, they were in those games to the very end. So I have to give some credit to Florida's ability to mount comebacks at the end. I think that they end up getting one and actually fulfill the comeback and win this game in Tallahassee. It's going to be, I think, an engaging game for 60 minutes. And I think that Florida ends up winning this game and shocking a lot of people here. I, I think that, it, you know, I, I just see it coming. Now, I would love yeah. to eat some crow if I'm wrong next week as my post-Thanksgiving meal. And, but right now, look, I think that Florida runs the ball effectively and has some success on the ground. Fair enough. I uh, While I disagree with you, I, I appreciate your argument. And we will obviously have a podcast next week uh, discussing the results of this contest. And for what it's worth, for those keeping track, uh, seven of the nine games featuring an SEC team this week, Graham and I picked differently uh, against the spread. So we will have to see the results of that and what it does for Graham in the standings. Uh, just a little bit behind right now, but this could be your week to catch up. 
Uh, and with that, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Swamp 247 podcast. That was our Vanderbilt review, Florida State preview, and uh, betting overview of the uh, SEC for week 13. Uh, lots of views. And uh, that's all of them, though. So we are going to bid you farewell. Uh, we do want you, though, to tune in uh, to future episodes of the Swamp 247 podcast. If you're listening to this on YouTube, A, we appreciate you. B, uh, hit like and subscribe. Drop a comment, as I say every single week. If you hate me, let me know. I don't care, uh, but I want to hear it. And we uh, certainly appreciate the engagement. And then, of course, uh, if you want more of our coverage and, and really the full package of everything that we're, we're doing, head on over to swamp247.com where we have written content uh, every single day about Florida football, basketball, and then really it's, it's November 23rd. We're getting closer to putting some some baseball content up on the site. Recruiting is obviously in full swing, uh, and Blake Alderman does a great job with that as well. So if you want uh, the latest on those things, you got to go over to the site where you also have access to our message board. And I should say this, uh, depending on when you listen to this podcast, it might not be too late to sign up via our Black Friday promotion. Uh, we're offering a 75% off deal for an annual membership uh, now through Monday, November 28th at 11.59 p.m. is your cutoff to sign up under this deal. It's like 20-some-odd dollars for an 27. entire year. There it is. $26.85. $26.85 for a full year of Swamp 247 VIP access. Uh, and the reality is, is that if you aren't subscribing, then you are missing out on parts of our coverage because we are offering VIP analysis on our message board as well as some news uh, all the time and we would encourage you to jump on in, uh, and we really hope you do. So we hope to see you on the site, and uh, until our next podcast, we wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, if I catch you uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, and if not, a great weekend, and we will talk to you soon on the Swamp 247 podcast.